The time is now. Volume 4, Episode 54. This is Employment Law Now, your go-to podcast for all labor and employment law issues. I am Mike Schmidt, Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor, and continue to be your host of this podcast. Hope everybody is uh, continuing to have a great start to this 2020 couple of things. Uh, first, I want to start with uh, just a reference to the fact that tomorrow uh, is Valentine's Day, another Valentine's Day coming and going. And I was going to repeat what I did last year, a uh, very short, very brief episode on uh, a timely issue, that being employee love contracts. But then I said, you know what, all of my very loyal listeners know how to go and capture one of the archived episodes of this podcast, so why not just reference that podcast episode that I did back last year? So actually on Valentine's Day last year, February 14th, 2019, I did a very brief episode on love contracts, what they are and what companies might want to think about uh, in the area of love contracts apropos of Valentine's Day. The episode was Volume 3, Episode 40, Uh, Volume 3, Episode 40. Again, that was actually on Valentine's Day last year, February 14th, 2019. So if you're interested uh, and maybe you didn't listen to that episode last year, it's only about 11 minutes long, uh, go back and take a listen to it. For purposes of today, episode 54, you may have noticed that among all of the government agencies that are out there at all levels, we seem to spend a lot of time talking about the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board. Why is that? Well, the NLRB also just issued three decisions that are extremely significant to all employers out there. What are they and why are they so significant? Well, here to help me answer those questions and wade through this particular ocean is my partner here at Cozen O'Connor, Dan Johns. Dan is in my labor and employment group, resident in our Philadelphia office, but also with a very national practice. Uh, And I am very grateful to have Dan uh, join me for today's episode. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Good to be here. So tell us a little bit about your practice. Uh, Mike, I'm a labor and employment lawyer at Cozen O'Connor, um, you know, basically soup them up nuts, labor and employment law. Uh, my practice of, in more recent years has kind of focused a little more heavily on traditional labor, so dealing with unions from the management side, but uh, still basically deal with everything that, that can happen and does happen in the employment world. And yeah, I mean, we've got a good mix of uh, listeners, some folks... Uh, are unionized, some folks uh, are not unionized, um, but one of the keys here, and we're going to talk about the NLRB uh, in today's episode, one of the keys that still remain is that the NLRB does not just govern unionized facilities. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, at least one of the cases we're going to talk about applies everywhere, and um, it is one of those things that sometimes gets lost, that uh, if you're non-union, you feel like, I don't have to worry about the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act, but from the standpoint of uh, non-union employers, um, you do, and the rights still apply. Yeah, absolutely. So for those who thought, uh, hey, I'm going to just turn this episode off because uh, this doesn't apply to me, uh, keep us going. So, uh, Dan, you can hardly go a day anymore, obviously, without hearing uh, something about the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board. And before we go into a few recent uh, big developments, I want to get your take on a couple of things. First, uh, over the past decade, uh, it's hard to believe that it's been a decade, and I've been talking about this really since 2010 with the Connecticut Ambulance and social media and all of that, Um, but over the past decade, the NLRB has seemed to be far more active a government body than maybe some other agencies or boards. Do you have a sense of why that is? Yeah, I think it has to do with sort of the function that the NLRB serves. it serves both an administrative function, but it also really more more commonly serves sort of a quasi-judicial function. So a lot of times with other administrative agencies, things get bogged down in the rulemaking and the politics of it, but the NLRB essentially makes law through cases, and those cases keep coming in, and, and when they do, um, they can you know issue decisions and make law even in the absence of a consensus about moving forward. So I think that's partially why you've seen it. And I think the other reason is, um, you know, labor issues just tend to get a bit more publicity and are That's a bit true. more active now because of, of unions' involvement, um, you know, in political campaigns. And, and oftentimes, um, when the NLRB changes members and membership, and, you know, you're going to see changes in the law just because that's who's been supporting, you know, the political party that gets into office. No question. And, and as a government body, and I, again, I, it's one of the things I say all the time, too, um, it's one of those government bodies that shifts with the shifting administrations in Washington, D.C. Do you share the frustration that both sides, employer, employee, uh, seem to have in not being able to really be guided on how to act when the rules of the game seem to change so much? It is frustrating. I mean, years and years ago, I used the term uh, when somebody asked me about it of ping pong jurisprudence. Um, (laughs) And basically, the ball just keeps getting hit back across the court. And to me, it's been more pronounced in, in, you know, recent years. I'm not 100% sure why that is, but it is sometimes hard to give advice to clients. And particularly over the last sort of eight years, you've been forced to give advice to clients in this area where you're trying to predict what the law will be and not necessarily telling them what the law is, which which puts, you know, puts you as a, in, as a lawyer in, a, I think, a more difficult um, position. And, you know, it's an interesting thing. Years and years ago, I actually attended, I'll tell a quick uh, anecdote, but I attended a congressional hearing on, on the issue of the right of graduate students to uh, unionize. It was not a, a well-attended hearing, but it, it, it was important to one of my clients. And one of the things that happened there was a board member was present and testified and was asked by a senator um, what happened as to why the law had changed uh, in this area. And basically the board member said, well, it changed because we have new members. And and the senator said, well, you know, you should realize that's not really a great answer. But um, unfortunately, that is the reality of what it is when the board changes. Um, and the politics change, the law changes. Yeah, no, and it, and it, it does get frustrating, again, for both sides, I think. Um, I, I want to get back to with the um, 
uh, end of this uh, some thoughts on the kind of uh, political aspect of this. But I do want to get uh, to a few recent developments and decisions that were issued by the NLRB right before the new year and what the impact may be for employers because um, I think that there are certainly at least three that just came out um, that may have some real impact uh, for both sides, employers and employees. First, uh, there's a big issue of employers having to let employees use their work email for their own personal non-business reasons. And there's been, to your point, uh, a lot of ping-ponging on that issue over the last several years. Can you give us a little bit of context on that issue and what the NLRB just did? Uh, sure, Mike. So, you know, this is, again, one of those long-standing issues that I think for a long time people thought they knew what the law was and that it changed and now it's changed again. But basically the issue is, and this is also an issue that applies whether you're unionized or non-union, uh, applies across the board, but the issue is can employers have a rule that essentially prohibits all non-business use of their email system? For many, many years the law was basically that you could have a rule like that, and there are various reasons, as you know, Mike, why employers might want to have a rule like that, um, particularly when it comes to things like sexual harassment and those types of things. Um, but in the Purple Communications decision, which I think came out around the 2014 timeframe, um, the NLRB sort of went the other way. We had gone from a rule where it had been similar to a bulletin board that as long as you said this bulletin board is purely for business, you could prevent any other usage, including employees who wanted to put something up about a union. Um, however, in that Purple Communications case, um, essentially the board overturned that and likened, I would say, the use of email to basically the same thing as talking in the workplace. And on non-work time, you could never prohibit employees from talking about unions and other types of issues related to their terms and conditions of employment. And if that were the case, then you couldn't forbid them from using email because that was a substitution for communication in the workplace. And so in that purple communication decision, presumptively, um, those types of rules that many, many employers, many of our clients had, um, essentially were all you know, deemed invalid in that. Even if the computer, the email system, it belongs to the employer, it's paid for by the employer, former rule uh, that got a lot of publicity was that uh, a company cannot prevent or prohibit employees from talking about non-business related stuff on those emails. Uh, that's right. Um, even though they provided sort of uh, everything to the employee in that instance, um, you could not prohibit employees from using it in that way. You could prevent them from doing it on the clock, sort of during work time, but other than that, no, it was presumptively invalid and ruled to that effect. So we got a change uh, right before the new year. Yeah, right before the new year, um, there was a case that came out involving Caesars, the casino company, and effectively it overturned the Purple Communication decision and allows employers to once again prohibit non-business uh, use of email. Um, interestingly, part of the reasoning behind it, and I think I agree with this reasoning, um, even though I sort of also kind of agreed with the board's reasoning back in 2014 that email has taken the, the, you know, the place of communication. But one of the things the board said here is almost that the workplace has gone beyond email. We have texting, you know, we have instant messaging, we have employees communicating with social media. A lot of, you know, in union campaigns there are, you know, private Facebook pages and stuff like that. Um, and so I do think to some extent the law has gone beyond, beyond that. Um, but essentially now employers can go back to where they were before on that issue, um, you know, should they choose to do it. And I think uh, it is a, the type of thing where you should look at your policies again because if you thought it was important before, probably it's not a bad idea uh, to look at it again. 
Absolutely. So at least uh, from the employer side, uh, they can find some comfort that the rule is back to perhaps what they were doing beforehand. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I actually am someone, you know, from the, the management side bar, though, who has never thought that these decisions were all that significant. And the reason <laughs> being is that... Hopefully there's no one from the NLRB listening yeah, to this. That's but. right. Well, it's significant from their standpoint. But um, <laughs> the reason being is that regardless of what that rule is, that even if you had a presumptively lawful rule in place that prohibited the non-business use of email, you still couldn't enforce that rule in a discriminatory manner. And who, Mike, as you sit here, how many of your clients could say that they don't allow their employees to send emails to their coworkers to say, hey, do you want to go to lunch today? Hey, you know, I have this on the weekend. Do you want to do this? I've got Girl Scout cookies that I want to sell. Girl Scout cookies, those types of things. We all know that happens all the time. So to the extent you're allowing that non-business use, it's going to be still illegal either way if you're prohibiting it just for the purpose of preventing employees from talking about unions or even not in the union thing for talking about ways to improve their terms and conditions of employment. So takeaway number one is we can go back to having those policies where we differentiate uh, business communication over email and non-business communication, but we still need to make sure that we're consistently applying or enforcing it. Absolutely, because if you are not, you could still get in trouble, even if your rule itself is lawful, the, the way you enforce it might not be. Great. All right, so the second issue um, has to do with employers not being allowed to insist on confidentiality during workplace investigations. And again, um, this is one of those, like the email communications, where I think employers uh, were mostly doing this anyway. They thought it was okay, and probably a good deal of them thought that they needed to uh, insist on confidentiality. But then the NLRB comes along and says, uh, no, in, in, in a lot of these cases, you can't impose confidentiality. So why don't you give us a quick uh, history lesson on this issue and get us to what the NLRB has now done right before New Year. Sure. Again, this is another one of those issues that sort of changed and now has changed back. And I kind of put this issue almost in the, you know, the, the what the heck are you talking about category when I've said this to clients because there are lots and lots of good reasons indeed I think the EEOC um, would suggest you're required to do this but you, there are lots and lots of good reasons why for example in the context of a sexual harassment investigation you, you would warn witnesses and tell them that you expect them to keep quiet with respect to the investigation what would be good reasons number one you don't want that person going and telling other people what they were asked so they can get their story straight Two, you could see sort of witness um, intimidation or retaliation against someone if it becomes clear when you've asked someone about certain activities. If they go then and talk to people about that or, or try to retaliate against them, um, those have generally in the Title VII context been viewed as bad things. Um, but there we had the NLRB come down um, several years ago and basically say um, that you couldn't have a rule like that, although it's a little more complex than that. I'll talk about that in a second. Basically, the underlying rationale of this issue has always been um, the fact that the, the act itself goes beyond sort of the right to engage in union organizing. It, it goes to basically the right to engage in concerted activity for other mutual aid or protection. So what's concerted activity? Concerted activity is more than on your own behalf. So more than one employee getting together to do what? To improve their terms and conditions of employment. The underlying rationale for these anti-confidentiality decisions has always been that how can you improve your terms and conditions of employment? For example, how do we get together to, to improve our wages 
if the employer has a rule which says you can't talk about your wages. So that is something that would inhibit that. And we see that now a lot beyond even the wage, uh, the NLRB situation with the Me Too movement and, you know, harassment and discrimination. There's a lot going on out there that we've all talked about dealing with, you know, do we want to not allow for confidentiality in our settlement agreements, for example, for that exact reason? Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of reasons why um, you might want confidentiality, and there are plenty of good reasons why you wouldn't want it. But in, in a garden variety investigation, most employers, for the most part, would err and, and did err on the side of confidentiality because it, generally speaking, protects the employee who's, who's the victim there most of the time, the person who's come forward and said, I have an issue. Um, so that leads us back to sort of the, the banner decision um, back, I think it was in 2015 or, or 2016. But essentially, that decision held that having a blanket rule of confidentiality investigations violated the act because, again, part of improving your terms and conditions of employment might be employees talking about how to deal with discipline, for example, how to deal with being accused of something. Um, employers sort of went crazy over that for good reason because um, the board essentially required them in all cases to justify why they would have required confidentiality. Not just to say we're concerned about retaliation, but to show why in each particular application of, of that confidentiality rule why you had a particular concern that it might happen in that case. It was a very hard standard to meet, and basically a lot of employers in that instance were, in their minds, stuck between a rock and a hard place of trying to do a good and adequate investigation on the Title VII side, and then trying to sort of, you know, also still comply with the LRA. And in many instances, Mike, I have a lot of clients who just decided that you couldn't comply with both, and many of them decided that I'm going to err in favor of confidentiality in those instances, even if it is a violation, because the Title VII stuff at that level is more important. And more likely to become an issue, perhaps, than an NLRB, you know, unfair labor practice issue. Exactly right. Um, but I've never been comfortable totally advising clients that they should violate the law, and that's kind of what those decisions sort of put us as lawyers in from the standpoint of of these issues so holiday week 2019 NLRB comes around again NLRB comes around again um, as I said earlier members change the law tends to change and so basically we're, we're back to where we were before from the standpoint of what the, the rule is and essentially what the board is saying now is as long as the rule requiring confidentiality only applies during the active investigation then you can have a blanket rule and don't have to justify it the way you did um, before now the board is suggesting in this case a little bit that if you say basically after the investigation is concluded and for all time into the future you can never discuss it that that you may need to justify and you can understand that because you know in many instances you might have employees who feel like they've been the victim of disparate treatment, meaning someone else got disciplined less than I did. So in that instance, post-investigation, post-discipline, the board is suggesting that maybe then you can't require confidentiality. But during the period that most employers were really concerned about it, the active investigation, employees getting their story straight, now you can have that rule and feel comfortable that you're not violating the NLRA. So the NLRB sort of uh, came down with a balancing uh, rule in some respects. As you just said, uh, you, you are allowed to insist on confidentiality during the time the investigation is going on, but you can't have this overbroad rule that says forever and, and ever, even beyond the investigation period, uh, you can't talk about any of this. 
they basically, that's right, although they basically said you might be able to justify it, but you're going to have to come up with a reason to justify it. So the default is a little different. So by default, if it's after the investigation, you can't insist on confidentiality unless you sort of, uh, you rebut the presumption uh, and tell us why it's necessary in your circumstances. Exactly. And, And again, from the standpoint of what people were most concerned about, which is really you know, those active investigation standpoints, now employers can feel comfort that if you have that rule, you can feel comfortable insisting on that. And and for us as lawyers, not basically telling their clients, well, it's okay, you should violate the law here because you're upholding the law over here. You can feel comfortable that you're okay in that active investigation. And yet the EEOC's position, which always was uh, sort of permitting confidentiality, that really hasn't changed. That's been consistent as the NLRB has gone back and forth on this issue. It, it really has, and which is why this has been so frustrating because the, the you know generally speaking, the employer is trying to sort of um, deal with all these completing legal concerns, and they really are. And the board has said, you know, I think at times that no, you know, you're, these aren't competing concerns, but they are. You're trying to do an investigation in the Me Too era of a sexual harassment case, trying to do an adequate one, trying to protect the person who's come forward, trying to protect witnesses who may have information that's crucial to making a determination as to whether or not harassment has occurred and whether or not there's been violation of company policy and whether or not there's been a violation of Title VII. In those instances to say, well, you risk being subject to an unfair labor practice charge because you're asking people to be, con- you know, to keep this confidential, where the EEOC has essentially suggested you should keep it confidential, was basically, you know, really putting employers, I think, in those instances in an impossible situation. And again, given the sort of relative liability, a lot of employers weighed in favor of going with the EEOC and not the NLRB, but it's never been a comfortable place. No question. So the third of uh, three recent NLRB developments that I wanted to ask you about actually does involve the traditional space and and unions. Uh, It's referring to uh, the payment of union dues and it um, involves uh, things that are referred to as a dues checkoff provision. For those who are not so familiar before we get into the actual case and decision here, what is a dues checkoff provision? So very simply, a dues checkoff provision basically is a provision that an employer might negotiate with the union in its collective bargaining agreement whereby the employer is required to deduct union dues directly from employees pay um, with proper authorization of course but but deduct those uh, dues from the pay and remit it directly to the union instead of the union itself having to be the one responsible for going and finding the money getting people to pay dues um, you know without it being sort of automatically deducted it is a very valuable um, you know piece of collective bargaining to a union because, you know, um, without it, it is much more difficult for unions to collect dues in those instances. So what did the NLRB do here uh, over the holidays? Well, this is one of those really long-standing rules. Um, So to go back in history, the rule that was overturned, um, you know, in 2015, I think was a rule that had been in place literally for 50 years. I can make this a two-part episode if you need to. (laughs) That's right. Well, the truth is there's not that much history because it had been consistent essentially for 50 years um, that the rule essentially was that when a collective bargaining agreement expires, the employer at that point had the ability to stop deducting, basically stop that dues checkoff um, because there was no active collective bargaining agreement in place um, during that time. So, and from that standpoint, um, some viewed it as kind of a valuable weapon, perhaps an economic weapon, whereby um, you had sort of pressure placed on the union to get the money that they would normally want 
um, you know, that was no longer coming because the contract was expired and therefore maybe they would come back to the bargaining table. I never really used it as an economic weapon and I don't think I really had a lot of clients who viewed it as that. To me, it was always the, the trade-off. So the other thing that goes away when a collective bargaining agreement expires, for the most part, the employer is required to keep the existing terms and conditions in effect, even if the contract expires. But really, the dues were one thing that changed, but the other significant thing that changes is that the no-strike provision in the collective bargaining agreement essentially goes away when the collective bargaining agreement expires. And if the no-strike provision goes away, the contract expires, the union has the right to strike. And if the union has the right to strike, it always has seemed to be the proper trade-off that the employer didn't necessarily have the right to continue collecting dues, you know, while that, that sort of um, no-strike provision was no longer in effect. And a lot of, I think a lot of lawyers who always looked at this through the years, and I think even the way the board looked at it, it was viewed as sort of the balancing effect between those two things when a collective bargaining agreement was expired. Um, 50 years, that was the law, and that changed then in 2015. And so where are we now with the NLRB on this issue? Okay, well, we're also one change beyond that. So uh, <laughs> in 2015, basically, they overturned that precedent and basically said that the employer could only stop deducting the dues if they could show a lawful impasse, this is in quotes, a lawful impasse in good faith attempts to renegotiate the contract. And basically, that meant that you couldn't stop deducting dues because it's very difficult, I think, in, in many instances at the time the collective bargaining agreement expires to really show that you were at lawful impasse on that. So from 2015 through 2019, employers no longer had the ability to shut off that dues deduction during the time period when a collective bargaining agreement expires. 2019, as I said, ping pong jurisprudence. We now have a new board, we now have a new rule, and we're back to the 50 years of precedent that you can do that with respect to uh, the expiration of a collective bargaining agreement. Great. So it's, it's amazing that, and I don't know if it's intentional that they're doing this over the holidays, uh, these fairly significant uh, decisions coming over the holidays. Maybe they think that uh, there's a good number of people out there who won't notice this or who realize this is happening. I, you know, it's interesting. A lot of times, I don't, I can't speak to, to these decisions over the holidays now, but a lot of times significant board decisions have come in December towards the end of the year because a lot of times there were board appointments that expired towards the end of the year. So a lot of times they rushed to issue decisions while there was a full complement of members. I don't know if that explains this, but if you go back the last couple of years and look at the number of significant decisions that come out at the end of the year, I suspect some of that is explained because you know, those in power were rushing to get decisions <laughs> out before there was no longer someone on the board to be able to issue a decision at that point. Sure, it makes sense. So speaking of uh, decisions coming out, uh, do you see any other significant NLRB issue uh, from the Obama administration that we might see get overturned uh, in the next few months or so? Well, I think you're going to see a couple of things. And it's interesting because um, some of what I think you're going to see or a lot of what you're going to see in 2020 is not actually going to be sort of the, the judicial decision making that I spoke about earlier, but um, you're going to see different rules being put in place, I think, on a couple of different issues. So where the, the board has actually gone through the administrative process to issue a rule with notice and comment, I think you're going to see a couple different things. Number one, the ambush election rules from a couple of years ago, whereby there's a lesser period of time when a petition is filed between the time of petition and time of election. Um, that's going to go away, and in April of 2020, you know, the board has already issued the new rule, and I think we're going to go back to not exactly the way it was before, Mike, but where there's a, still more time from the time a petition is filed until the time that an election is held, 
which has always been important to employers for, for various reasons. I think that's uh, something that you're definitely going to see. Um, there's been a rule issued on a new joint employer standard uh, that essentially overturns the, the Browning Ferris decision. Um, the board actually tried to overturn it judicially, sort of got in trouble from the standpoint of one of its members having been involved in the underlying decision. So they had to void that. Um, there's a rule that's in that they had proposed that I think will be effective very soon. I thought it actually was going to be effective at the end of December, but I don't think it's been official yet. Um, the other thing I think you're going to see is an issue that I mentioned earlier, which is the board is going to issue a rule on whether or not graduate students have the right to organize, which you know, in a, is limited to, to who that applies, but is very important to a lot of colleges and universities. Um, that to me is an interesting one, because as the law stands right now, um, from the Obama board, uh, graduate students do have the right to organize. That law has never changed because most of the unions who had pending cases at the time withdrew that because looking ahead, knowing that there was a different board, knowing the law would change, they basically didn't give them the opportunity to have that decision. Um, so what did the board do? Well, if they don't have the decision, we'll just issue a rule. So it looks as if um, that will happen uh, as well in 2020. So um, I would expect that as well as sort of chipping away at other types of, of issues, um, particularly I would say in the policy, the confidentiality ha you know, handbook area. Social where, media, that's Yeah, stuff. social media, where really there have been a lot of significant decisions that, that are sort of pro-employee rights in that. And I suspect with this board, you'll see more of a curtailment of that as we move forward. And so from all of that, I guess another takeaway is we, we shouldn't expect that the NLRB is going to, you know, fade away back behind the curtain anytime soon again. No, I don't think so. Um, you know, I don't think the fact that it's an election year makes a difference. I think you're going to see a significant number of decisions through the end of this year just for that reason alone that it's an election year. And, uh, and I think there will be significant decisions. And I really, at some level, hope it won't be that, um, you know, should the White House change and there's a Democrat in office that we then go back and say, the law's going to change on all these things again, because no matter which side of this issue that you're on, as you said earlier, having some certainty with respect to, to what the law is and what precedent is really benefits both sides. Yeah, and you read my mind for uh, really my last question. I was going to ask you on the flip side of that, uh, if we do have a Democrat who moves into the White House after this year's election, do you think we're just going to go through the same exercise again of now reverting back to a more pro-employee NLRB and these decisions over the holidays and, in fact, this podcast episode becomes moot? Uh, I wish the answer was not, but I'll, I'll answer it <laughs> succinctly. The answer is yes. That is uh, exactly what I think will happen. And why the NLRB more than some of these other government agencies? Why is this such a ping-pong jurisprudence seemingly more with this board than others? You know, it's it's interesting. I, I, I really do myself believe that it has to do with um, the influence of sort of union packs and union money in elections such that um, when you've done a lot to get someone elected, uh, there needs to be a more immediate payoff. And I think when that has happened, um, you've seen the board swing wildly because the members who have been, you know, put on the board in those instances are looking to make it up. And then when you get another political party, you know, the Republicans in power who look at it and say it's been crazy the last four years or the last eight years, um, they want to roll it back. And I think, you know, from the standpoint of, of you know, the how active the board has been, there's always going to be these cases where they're going to have the opportunity to overturn it. And um, I just don't see it changing. For me, when you see sort of the dues checkoff thing, it's one thing to have a you know an issue that's ping-ponged around a lot. But when you're talking about something that's really been the rule in place for 50 years, whether Democrat or Republican, 
to me, that's a significant thing to say, you know what, that was wrong. That's a long period of time um, to say that it's wrong and it only survived about four years and who knows, maybe that'll only survive another two. Um, it's it's fascinating, and uh, as you said, we're gonna we're gonna keep seeing I think some real significant decisions uh, through 2020, um, regardless of what happens in the election. So, uh, Dan Johns, thank you so much. If anyone listening to this uh, is having trouble finding or just wants to get copies of any of the decisions that uh, we're talking about here, uh, as always, feel free to email me, uh, mschmidt at cozen.com. Uh, we're happy to send you uh, any of the decisions, happy to take comments, as always, about this and any other podcast episodes. Dan, thank you so much. It's really been great having you on. Thanks, Mark. Very significant decisions out of the NLRB indeed, and as Dan just told you, uh, we expect a lot more coming out of this particular agency as we move through 2020. That is all the time we have today. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Thank you also for all the comments that so many of you uh, have been uh, sending my way. Uh, Please continue to do so. Uh, We love hearing from you. Until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.